Hey, good job. Uh, we were unsure this morning that uh, everybody would remember to show up a, an hour earlier, so uh, that's great. A uh, couple of administrative notes here. Uh, the headset is uh, having problems, so I'm going to be using this, and so if I, by neglect, drift away and you can't hear me, please go, eh? okay, in the back there, or whatever you need to do. <clears throat> Uh, for anybody that comes up to the podium afterwards, I've got a little throat thing, so I've got a cup of coffee here, which I realize will be lukewarm by the time I use it, but I might forget it altogether, so don't pound on the pulpit too much when you come up to make uh, the final announcements, Mike. Uh, might disturb that. Also, want to thank uh, everybody for your prayers for Miles Vincent, born earlier this week. Uh, to Johnny and Laura. Uh, Miles ended up at Children's Mercy because of a growth on his head that they were unsure about uh, and had to do a couple of MRIs on it, but uh, Miles was able to go home with mom and dad yesterday and, and uh, they seem to be doing well. Uh, it's also a relief. Uh, we have a, a, a girls to boy ratio of about two to one uh, in grandchildren. And uh, while Miles is our eighth grandson, he's only the second that bears the name Vincent. And uh, so uh, little Noah Vincent now does not have to bear the, the carrying on the name by himself. So we're grateful for that. Uh, <clears throat> you may be wondering, when is this Sermon on the Mount series going to end? Yes. <laughs> now. I don't want any applause here because somebody might take it the wrong way, young lady. <laughs> but Lord willing, next month will be the last in this series. Uh, and uh, I just got to say it's been a, a, a huge, huge uh, challenge on my life. Uh, uh, I look back and we started in December of 2013. How long it's been going on? <laughs> um, and you might have thought that it's kind of slowed down here near the end. In fact, we started the last half of chapter seven in July, literally. And there's a reason for that, okay? Um, because the Sermon on the Mount, the most of the teaching, uh, goes through the, the pinnacle, which is the golden rule, okay? That kind of sums everything up and, and gives you a general rule for life. And after the golden rule, uh, we get into to, uh, Jesus' warning. And the gospel is good news, but you know, it's also serious. It's something very, very important. And uh, I'm going to read to you our passage for today, which you, if you're alert, you may recognize from last month. And if you've been really paying attention, you may recognize it from two months ago. All right? It is starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see, uh, this is serious because Jesus is warning us of the dangers of self-deception. To whom was the warning given? And if you remember from our teaching before, he is not speaking to atheists and those who clearly disclaim any interest in the Lord. He's speaking to people who are, consider themselves followers of Christ, people who are likely in the church. And those are, some of those are the people who he is calling here self deceived. But he loves us so much that he makes clear the danger of faux faith, a superficial belief, just saying, Lord, Lord, without doing what Jesus teaches, relying instead upon their works, their activities, maybe even having just faith in their faith rather than in the work of Christ on the cross. Uh, there's also the danger of trusting in feelings, whether false or true. Uh, the New Testament speaks a lot about God's love, and thankfully, that's true. God does love us, and he is perfect love. But many make love to be a simple emotion. They fail to recognize the clear teaching of John when he quotes Jesus, who said, He that has my commandments and keeps them... He it is who loves me. Remember, he who has and keeps my commandments. And then uh, people fail to recognize Paul's clear teaching about when he describes love as practical action in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, all this warning stems from and highlights the singular point in verse 21 of Matthew 7, where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus understands our tendencies to substitute feelings of love for real love, demonstrated by submission and obedience. And so he repeats that the wise man hears these words of mine and does them. Uh, the great temptation, deception, and danger of thinking and living love as a feeling is rampant through the church. The thread running through all of these warnings is the issue we really don't want to talk about much. That is judgment. Jesus introduces the subject at the beginning of the chapter. He said, with, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And then after the golden rule, he returns to the topic of judgment and the application of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Remember his pictures of the two gates and the two ways. The wide and popular one leads to destruction. And then he talks about the trees, the good tree and the corrupt tree, or the fake Christian that does not bear good fruit, but is hewn down and burned up. 
He then tells us on the day of judgment, when it, many will say they have done great things in my name, but they'll be shocked to hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And now he talks about the house built on the sand, which cannot stand the winds and waters of trials, and great is its fall. So I think we can get the impression that Jesus is, Jesus is kind of serious about judgment. And of course, the problem within the church is not outright rejection of Christ, as in the world, but false religion false belief. Okay, as we've studied, it is those who are deceived, and the great deception of false religion is that it seems so nice, so comfortable, so easygoing and satisfying for the moment. You know, and think about it, fellowship with good people, fun activities like we had yesterday, hopefully today, heartwarming stories and sermons and uh, feeling good about yourself because you have the opportunity to serve and do good for others. And all of these things are good and godly in themselves, but they can become part of the deception. Uh, then come trials and tests, the winds of adversity, the rain of, rain of setbacks and the flood of persecution. Just like the beautiful house on sand False religions, as nice as they look and feel in the sunshine, they don't stand during the storms through the tests. So even though it's a nice-looking structure, it's built by a fool, and therefore it's useless. This deception is everywhere. Even the saved can be tempted by the success and affluence of the ungodly. The psalmist uh, in Psalm 37 says, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. It flourishes. And it'd be so easy to envy the rich man in Luke 12, whose barns are bursting. And he finds his security in those possessions. But Jesus says to him, you fool. This night your soul shall be required of you, and then whose shall those things be which you have provided? So when the tests of life come, it is the fool who has built his, sand, his, his house upon the sand of material possessions. And these tests are universal. All that build, rely, and prepare will be tested. In Matthew 5, it tells us, Jesus tells us that this, he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so there's absolutely no basis for believing that once you become a true Christian, that there will be no more problems and you can live happily ever after. That simply is a lie. As all people face these tests, it's important to understand what Jesus intended by this word picture that he, that he paints. Now, understand, he painted a picture, and we have to interpret that picture. Okay, and what I say to you today is just my opinion. Okay, I'm not, we can't be too dogmatic about this. But here's my attempt anyway. In verse 24, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. In verse 26, he said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And so, the one who obeys Jesus, built his house, his life 
upon the solid foundation of, of Jesus' words, not the shifting sands of what other people or the culture says, this is how you should live, which is just a, a, a fault-ridden infrastructure. And the rock seems to be the words of Jesus. Uh, he uses the word, the, the, the phrase, words of mine, twice, which indicates an importance. It's much like when he says, you have heard, but I say this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's something of importance here. And the one who builds his house upon the sand represents the person who, who hears and he builds, yet he does not obey the words of Jesus. He does not build wisely, thinking about the outcome about eternity. And then it says, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house. And that phrase applies to both houses. It signifies the tests that inevitably come to all of us. In general, the storm that we see pictured here is a great divider. Storms in scripture are oftentimes used to indicate God's judgment. And it certainly does apply to the judgment day and our destination after the grave, but it also applies to judgment in life. Even in our day, we respect tornadoes in the Midwest, don't we? We respect them. And we see horrific pictures of the damage of hurricanes on the coast. Uh, but all but the very young are comfortable riding out those storms. And, and there's a reason for that because we have seen the destructive force, at least through pictures, of, let's say, a nuclear blast or a, a volcano like they have in Hawaii right now. We see the tremendous destruction. And so it kind of makes our storms here look a little less potent. And we have stronger structures these days. So um, we're not as intimidated by those things as people would have been hearing Jesus talk about those things in those times. Now, what can we say about the rain? As Jesus points out, falls on everybody. Uh, we're either in a house built on rock or on sand, and every person who goes by the name of Jesus is either wisely building upon the rock or foolishly building on the sand. But this latter group is deluding themselves or rationalizing as to their salvation based upon things like church membership, good-natured personality, uh, their free use of the name of Jesus, uh, selfless service, good deeds, those sorts of things. And these ch folks tend to pick and choose the passages that they like, mostly about God's love and mercy, which is certainly there. But they don't like those verses that focus on the counterbalance. That is God's wrath, God's righteousness, his holiness, and his justice. The rain that falls on both groups, I believe, are the things that we tend to view as the negatives in life. You know, illnesses, disappointments, setbacks, uh, heartaches. And some of the rain we can attribute to an unbiblical attitude, or maybe sin. Uh, you know, that's pretty clear. But other rain comes out of the blue. We have no idea why these, why these things happened. It's harder to understand. 
what God is doing. In other words, the only explanation is that when these bad things happen to us, we understand that it can only be because of God's purposes, because he's sovereign. And he has some purpose in that that will bring glory to him, no matter what it does to us, because we are his vessels. All these tests, all these trials are inevitable, just like, as some say, death and taxes. Um, How about the floods? Again, not being dogmatic here, but a possible interpretation of floods is worldliness. You know, there are many causes of floods. Floods can come gradually due to heavy rain, like they had in Maryland this past week. Uh, floods can come gradually. Uh, they, we, the rain we experience in life, the consequences of sin, setbacks, losses, and, and disappointments can rise subtly over time and cause worldly attitudes to seep into our houses. Uh, they can arise because of unusually heavy snowfall in the mountains and then an unusually warm spring thaw that uh, brings the, the waters down uh, down the mountains. And we may not even see the cause uh, of this worldliness creeping in. Here's another cause. Um, in the spring of 1889, a storm system developed over Kansas and Nebraska and then went east, as they usually do. And in that process, probably picked up warm, moist air from the Gulf of Mexico. And by the time it got to western Pennsylvania, which is a higher elevation, it dumped one of the heaviest rainfalls on record. <clears throat> and the dam downstream, which is to the west, going down to the Ohio River Valley, uh, burst as a result. And um, the people downstream from the dam uh, in those days had been given many false alerts, and they ignored the warning. Um, This is uh, uh, a bit melodramatic here, I suppose. It's some artist's rendition of of what happened there. this is some of the actual damage. Uh, the, uh, the flood that hit Johnstown, Ohio, uh, took over 2,200 lives uh, and is considered the worst dam breakage in our history. But this very same thing can happen to individual believers and to the church. Uh, social pressures can build up and suddenly burst the, jam, the dam of general biblical values within the culture that have held back the worldly waters for maybe centuries. Uh, think about this. Life was considered sacred until the dam burst in the 1970s. Okay. How about just in the last few years? Didn't we experience the breach of a dam in regard to marriage and now sexual identity? Literally, the dams are breaking around us, and that raises the level of worldliness. The 
the biblical anchors that were put down centuries ago are ripped up by the torrent of these worldly floodwaters. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life can rush in and cause us all to have a desire to be more socially acceptable. Nobody likes to be saying everybody else is wrong and we few in this auditorium are the only ones who have it right. Nobody wants to say that. That's where we find ourselves. Um, sometimes it can take the course of crashing persecution. Okay? Sometime this month we expect to get a decision um, about the Colorado cake maker who was told you must celebrate with your artistic work on a cake a same-sex marriage or go out of business. Okay? Pray about that. Pray about that. The world will test us in many, many ways. Now, how about the winds? Again, can't be too insistent here, but some believe that the winds may reflect the direct attacks of Satan. You know, Satan can appear to us as an angel of light using scripture. Uh, he can tempt us through the world, but he can also come at us with a full force and fury to blow over our houses. Maybe you've known people who lived good and godly lives up to the end, and all of a sudden they were attacked, maybe even on their deathbed. Uh, in his letter to the Ephesians church, uh, Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then uh, in verse 11, he makes clear that we must put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And here, Jesus is telling us that the way to stand firm against Satan's attacks is to stand upon the solid rock of his sayings, his commands, his words to us in this message for all time. These tests will try us with the reins of difficulties. Some are hit with the flood of worldliness and others are buffeted by the winds of Satan's attacks. However, all of us will face the one inescapable test of our foundation, and that is death, 100% of us. Um, there is nothing so sobering as considering the uncharted waters of death, the passing over from all we've known in this life to eternity. So when we look at the context here, uh, the previous passage is about the straight and the narrow gate, the bad and the dis and diseased tree uh, that's cast into the fire, the terrifying words about those who do wonderful things in Jesus' name yet are told, I never knew you, depart from me. It might seem like Jesus is trying to frighten us into believing. Uh, you know, in the uh, fairly liberal mainline church in which I grew up, uh, all I remember is just sweetness and light. But 
Prissy grew up in a fundamentalist church, and she will admit to you that the reason she went forward the first time, because she did not want to go to hell. Okay? Uh, and when we sometimes say that's not a really good reason, it does work. Uh, in, and in some sense, this is what Jesus is doing. Now, hear me out. If How many of you have ever gone to sleep, maybe within the last few days, listening to the rain? Very pleasant experience. Let's say you, you know, you're, you're out, you're sawing logs, and the rain gets really heavy, and it's pouring down. And then in your wonderful, peaceful sleep, you're interrupted with... Hey, get out of your house, it's about to flood. And you might think, oh my, Vincent, you know, he's an exaggerator. <laughs> you know, and even if he thinks those things, even if he decides to stay because, you know, he just trusts his house or whatever, he's not likely to be mad at me if it's truly flooding outside, okay? And Jesus essentially ends his teaching here in the sermon pounding on the doors of people deceived by the world, by Satan, by false religion, or by themselves. You know, and they may be even believing that a loving God would never send anybody to a place like hell. Uh, a lot of people think that hell is just something, a place that somebody made up to scare people into going to church or doing good. They do so at their own peril. Um, over the last several months, uh, I've entitled the message, Decide Between, this thing or that thing. And, and the Bible has a lot to say about making decisions on important issues in life. But none is more important than this decision between heaven and hell, is it? And just as heaven is uh, described by metaphor in the Bible, we can't give you an exact address for hell, can we? We can tell you what it's, how it's described by metaphor as weeping and grinding of teeth, outer darkness, exclusion and rejection, torment and burning. Now, I don't know if it looks like that, but I wouldn't be surprised, okay? It's a bad, bad place. So this issue is the most basic and important question for all people. Is there really such a destination that we should avoid? And the answer to that question depends on the answer to a prior question. Do you really take Jesus at his word? Now, if you're an atheist, someone who says, I don't believe any of that stuff, it will be easy for you to ignore hell while you're alive. If, you're, if you think you're saved, but you just don't take the existence of hell seriously, well, then you simply don't heed the warnings. You simply don't believe Jesus. And if you do not believe the one on whom you're counting for for your salvation, 
How secure are you in that salvation? Really. Now, given the certainty of death that everybody's aware of and what the Bible tells us about hell, we've got to ask, how do we face these tests? And the things we tend to rely upon, our gifts, our talents, our personality, our reputation, our vocation, mean nothing if we do not take into account certain facts of life, death, and afterlife. All the building materials that people will use are merely kings, queens, jacks, and jokers in a house of cards that will tumble if we don't take certain questions seriously. And I think we put these on your handout, um, and I just ask you to take a look at those. When I have my greatest need in these tests, do I consistently find the Lord? Do I know he's there? Or when in danger, when in doubt, do I run and jump and scream and shout? Okay? Do I consider him as my loving father who will care for me through those tests, come what may? Or do I get angry at him for taking me through those tests? Am I confident that he will never leave me nor forsake me? Can I rejoice in him even during the tests? Do I have any doubt about whether I want my father and his Christ at the center of my life. And finally, do I fear death? Or do I accept it as inevitable and look forward to the glorious eternity that all believers who call on Jesus will share when their loving Father calls them home? All tough questions but all necessary to be faced as followers of Christ. Psalm 37 tells us, Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. So the person who's at peace with God will have peace even in the face of death. Psalm 112 tells us, a good man shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. No matter what happens, he is secure. And then look at Jesus' parable on the sower. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It illustrates how one may appear to thrive as a believer. He springs up quickly, but without roots, he will wither and die in the scorching of persecution, perhaps. And the same end comes to the one who takes seed among the thorns. Uh, even though he hears the word, the cares and temptations of the world choke out that word, and therefore he's unfruitful. Now, contrast all this with the apostles and the early saints. And if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know what I'm talking about. These people went to their death, torture, crucifixion, burning at the stake, giving thanks that God would count them worthy to suffer in his name. That's our example. That's our example. And how can we miss 
the message of Paul, who wrote from prison to the Philippian church when he proclaimed that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. And then to the Corinthians, he wrote, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And then in verse 17, he continues, For this light momentary affliction during life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen here on earth, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And finally, to his son Timothy. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me, Paul, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have allowed and loved his appearing. You know, Paul knew that he had a purpose for being here. He had work to do. But he surely looked forward to his death and eternity with his Lord. Now, Seems a little odd to look forward to death, doesn't it? Unless, of course, you're a secure believer looking forward to your rewards in heaven, which will make this life look like nothing. Who can have that attitude concerning death and eternity? Who can face the trials and tests of life? Who will not be told, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, Rather, well done, good and faithful servant. It all comes down to this. It is those who do the things that Jesus teaches us in this message for all time. You see, we all have the inevitability. We all have it. We know we're going to die. As biblical Christians, we understand that following death, there's an inevitable judgment for all. For believers, it's the bema or the judgment seat of Christ in which we will receive rewards for our deeds on earth. We're not receiving our salvation. We're receiving rewards for those deeds. For the unbeliever, it's the great white throne judgment in which they will receive punishments for their sins 
on earth. It's not that believers have fewer or less serious sins. It's that we have been redeemed. The price for those sins has been paid for us on the cross by Jesus Christ, and he gives us that eternal life and that reward. And all that, without even considering our works, until he measures out the rewards. So we should all be assured, judgment will come. And the reason that Jesus shoes away those that do wonderful things in his name is that no one, not any of us, can hide from him. He is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 12, or Hebrews 4. And the final sobering thought is this judgment is final. Now, it's popular to say that God is a God of second chances today. And I know there's stories about, you know, Paul himself and Jonah and others. But whatever you believe about that, that second chance thing, it does not apply to the final judgment because that judgment is final. So a decision needs to be made. Now, how does one who calls himself a believer make sure they're calling an election their salvation? Jesus says here, it is by doing what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Yet, he knows our hearts, and therefore, we know that it's not just mechanically doing things. It's not just our activity or our devout religious practice. Many will say, I went to Sunday school regularly. I had devotions daily. I served on many church committees. I passed out clothing and food for the poor. Surely I'm okay. Surely I come in. And Jesus will look at some of those people and say, yes, you did. But I never knew you. If that's the basis of their hope. Rather, as you would expect, this is an issue of heart obedience and submission. We do it because we trust in him, because we know he loves us, and we know this is his word. So we should read that word. We should pray and meditate on it. We should ask ourselves if our heart truly desires to know him better, to keep his commandments, to glorify him. Uh, last month, we passed out a summary of, of what he taught in the sermon. Take a look at that and see if that is your true desire. I know we're not perfect. None of us are. But look at that list. You can find it on the website. So in summary, this is Jesus' great warning. And it's important that we pay attention because he knows. He sees the other side that we don't see. And he pleads with us to take this seriously and make our calling and election sure. He knows that many who are active in the church will be deceived and will not pass the test. And so through Paul, he calls upon us in 2 Corinthians 13 to examine ourselves, to see whether you are in the faith Test yourselves 
Do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. If we believe God's word, we believe Jesus' words, we will see that he loves us enough to warn us repeatedly. This is serious business. But the fact is, he loves us. In a little while, you're going to be having the Lord's table, and there's no better time to examine yourself in these regards, to know that you know. That is our hope here at Lion and Lamb, that in our little corner, that we are sure. There's no question. And if you have any questions, you can talk to any of us. Uh, but that is the most important lesson of this sermon. Father in heaven, we give you all praise and all glory. Father, please don't let us play church. Make it clear to us what your word says and that you desire not our activities, not our service, not any of these things, as good as those things are, you desire our hearts. And from that, heart love will flow those other good things. Lord God, help us to see that you love us enough to warn that some may be counting upon their great personality or their Bible study or their service or their just their faith. Lord, help us to see that the only thing we can count on is the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. We are worthless without that. We are lost without that. Lord, thank you for the privilege that you've given to me to uh, work through this message for all time. And I pray, Lord, that it would not be lost on the hearts and minds of the saints of Lion and Lamb, as well as myself. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.